Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday, December the 21st, 2022. Ten days left of the year. It's been quite a year, 2022. One of my favorite few days as regular viewers and listeners to the show know was the Techonomy event in Sonoma uh, last month in November. Really wonderful event, bringing together technologists of one kind or another, environmentalists, digital media people. Uh, we ran a series of interviews from there, one with Andrew Anagnos, the CEO of Autodesk, critiquing the egoism of Silicon Valley. Another with Michael Wolf, a longtime, highly respected media analyst on the future of big media, mainstream media. Another with Peter Rawlinson, the CEO of Lucid Motors on electronic vehicles. One with Lucas Joppa, particularly interesting, uh, I was going to call him a young man. He's not so young, but he's younger than I am. A very smart man who was the chief sustainability officer at Microsoft. Now he's doing his own thing in terms of saving the world. And one with a, a, a journalist called Isaac Stone Fish about uh, the threat of China. I think he perhaps exaggerated it, but it was an interesting conversation. Um, it's going to be a difficult year, 2023, for traditional media. Uh, that's what the information suggests. And I want to check in with my friend, uh, David Kirkpatrick, who is the editor-in-chief of Techonomy, the man behind it. It was his vision that launched this several years ago, bringing together economics, digital media, technology, and the environment. David, um, before we get to 2022, perhaps you might just lay out what Techonomy is. You have an interesting piece on your thank website, you. Why Techonomy? So, yeah, so why thank, Techonomy? Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Um, that piece was written a long time ago, but I think it's still valid. Uh, Techonomy was born out of my own, number one, conviction that meetings and conferences really can move the needle and make a difference in the world and help people get things done. Uh Combined with my conviction that, especially 12 years ago when we started, technology had a bigger role in creating a better future than most people recognized. And we, we always tried to take a deeply optimistic view of the potential of technology writ large in all of its manifestations to aid human progress. And, you know, with a lot of bumps in the road, I still fully believe that that is essential mindset to have. Uh, and that's the mindset we have adopted and maintained and campaigned for, for all these 12 years. Well, I, one of the things I really like about Techonomy, David, is that you don't just do digital media. We don't just spend our time talking about Twitter and Facebook and Google. You focus on the environment, you focus on, on politics. Um, my reading of Techonomy is that you see it as the driving force for better or worse of early 21st century life. Is that fair? You mean technology? Uh, yes, I do. Yes, technology, I, which is what techonomy is. So we live in a, for better or worse, a, a techonomic universe. That's what defines us. That's what drives us forward. And that's what threatens us. And I love that use of an adjective. So thank you for that. Um, I agree with, you know, I think we are formed by our technology and we live in a 
even way more than when we started Techonomy 12 years ago, a intrinsically technologized landscape and society. And it is a techno society. It is deeply technologized for better and for worse. Uh, my belief is that we have to kind of put our shoulders to the wheel even more consciously and willfully uh, on the good sides of technology in order to basically save ourselves at this point because we are in a real pickle. So let's get to 2022. You founded, as you said, uh, Techonomy back in 2010. Maybe you could write a book indeed on what's happened in the last 12 years. It's a fascinating narrative. But how would you um, summarize 2022 in a in a techonomic context, David? What's happened? What are the major events? I'd say the major event is that we lost our innocence about technology finally once and for all in that really we've spent way too much of the last decade with a kind of view that not just what I was saying before, the technology aids progress, but that technology is the way to get rich and that the tech leaders know what's good for us and that uh, the world ought to really look up to and build wealth based upon a small number of global companies that are based mostly in Silicon Valley and have changed everything about our lives and more power to them. That's kind of the way we've lived. And stock markets globally have completely depended upon those companies as the central engine of, uh, of upward movement of stock prices and, and valuations and, and wealth globally. For everybody from, you know, uh, Bin Salman to, you know, the guy who is driving your Uber. Uh, it, it, wealth has been a tremendous side benefit of this technologized age. But in 2022, um, these companies stumbled in a way they never have before. I mean, to a dramatic degree. And it's manifested in a surprising number of ways. Um for my sake, given that I wrote a book about Facebook and I've been... Right, so, so let me come back at you at this, Dave, because you've been a regular, one of the most frequent visitors on Keen On over the years. You wrote The Facebook Effect uh, almost, what, when was it? More than 12 years ago. When it did came it out in 2010. It came out the same year we so started. So you that. kind of founded Techonomy once you wrote The Facebook Effect. Yes, uh, exactly. But you've become one of the most articulate critics of Facebook, uh, you Thank were you. on the show back in June 2020 talking about how Facebook has become increasing the platform for right-wing fanatics. You were on uh, in November uh, talking about Zuckerberg's pandering relationship with the right. You were actually on also earlier this year talking about Facebook's uh, <laughs> shift from a tragedy to a fast. But, I, mean, I mean, all this Facebook stuff was happening before 2022. I don't want to turn this into another Facebook conversation. But what's happened in 2022 to finally push us over the edge so that we've lost our illusions about technology? Is it Elon Musk? Is it the stock market crash? It's not Facebook. It, all those things are part of it. What's happened to, to Facebook, I think, is you know, a fundamentally misguided strategy of doing everything to move towards the metaverse uh, has resulted in the perception that that Zuckerberg, who has all power in that company, has basically 
been disregarding the central businesses that are the profit engine and the source of essentially wealth for his shareholders. And, um, and in, I, I wish it was because people were really mad that he continues to allow so much. Right. So I, I take your point on Facebook. We've done a number of shows on Facebook. Let's talk about 2022 yeah. in, in yeah. a non-Facebook. What's happened that's different from previous well, years? Look, I think this there's a weird this weird rule of billionaires and and all powerful maniacs. I mean, I think the biggest thing that's happened in 2022 is Putin's brutal, uh, misguided, heartless, uh, hate-filled, violent invasion of Ukraine. But then, you know, Elon Musk's, you know, metaphorically violent invasion of Twitter is quite parallel. I mean, there's mm. this sort of world we now live in where people like Zuckerberg or Musk or Putin, they think they know everything. They won't listen to anybody else. They just take rash actions at all costs and at all prices. And many of us suffer a significant consequence of that bad judgment. And I think we've seen in those three cases, most notably, but other cases as well, um, real harm to the world in this year. And I think that has contributed to the sort of bloom coming off the rose of tech uh, is because, you know, but Zuckerberg and, and Musk together have done a very good job in fundamentally changing the perception that the whole world has about what tech is and what tech leaders are trying to accomplish and what Silicon Valley means. What about Sam Bankman-Fried? Is he? That one too. He's another. Uh, is there something special about? I mean, he's clearly a uniquely talented fraudster. But is there something special about his association with the collapse of crypto? Is crypto symbolic, or again, uh, uh, exhibit A, B, or C in in your argument about twenty twenty two? Well, I think he was a creation of this hyperinflated, uh, credulous world where tech could do no wrong. And, and the investors who bought that whole idea and helped create that idea, particularly the venture capitalists, you know, they unbelievably bolstered this, you know, naive, inexperienced young man to take this absurdly ambitious approach to managing people's money at scale uh, but it turned out to be completely irresponsibly. You know, he was probably never actually a billionaire, but he lost, you know, more than a billion dollars of customer money, uh, quite a bit more. I don't think we even know how much money he, he's destroyed for his, you know, people that entrusted him with, his, with funds. Um, it, it's idiotic to me, the uh, frenzy around crypto that has, uh, been happening for the last couple of years. And, and I think the fact that it could lead to the creation and implosion of somebody like Sam Bankman-Fried is, is really a clear argument for why the whole edifice of crypto has been misconceived and, and over-promised and, and, and under-delivered. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that Bitcoin wasn't a brilliant invention or that there may not still be opportunities for blockchain to change many systems in society. I think that probably will still be the case. But um, 
it isn't a way to get rich. That's not the way you should think about it. And the people who thought about it that way, many of them are now paying a very horrible price. You present techonomy um, in tech in your in in your techonomy manifesto. You prevent you present technology as a neutral force. I hear that a lot. Yeah. But you also hear the argument, David, that technology represents the values of its creators. Is there some truth to that? And is that one of our great challenges of being yeah. a bit more honest about how technology incorporates our values? You're always asked such well-phrased questions, Andrew. I, I couldn't disagree with anything in your assumption there. I, I probably wouldn't write that that way today, that technology is neutral. Um, it does embody the values of its creators. That's much more evident now than it's ever been. And unfortunately, the values of many of its creators have been quite bad and quite uh, reprehensible, quite harmful and destructive. And again, I would make Zuckerberg possibly exhibit A, um, Sam Bankman-Fried, of course. But um, we, we've learned, this is one of the things in 2022, I think we've learned to be instant, you know, societally much more skeptical of the motives of technological innovators. And that's probably a very, very healthy thing. I mean, here's a way that that's been manifested in an interesting way just in recent weeks. Look at ChatGPT coming out of OpenAI, this uh, conversational interface for um, generative text. Right. Uh, and we've done I a number of shows on it. It's a fascinating development, of course, created in part by Sam Altman, who's another charismatic genius coming out of Silicon Valley who also chills some people, including myself. Uh, yeah, but I'd say in, in general, we, we aren't, I'm not as uh, wholeheartedly afraid of his values. Um, but the th reason I mention it in this context is that, you know, look at the two-sided reaction we've had to this extraordinary breakthrough. Uh, which I think has properly commanded tremendous attention in recent weeks. On the one hand, it's impossible not to be deeply impressed by what this technology can do and, and the genuine assistance it can bring to writing of all sorts and to interactions of all sorts. And people are using it already for call center automation and all kinds of things. Uh, and certainly writers are using it. I've used it and it really has uh, some pretty good capabilities for writers. On the other hand, it's often wrong. And much of the commentary has been about the ways it could lead us astray, that it could, you know, from, from you know, pretty obvious problems like uh, allowing high school kids to fake papers to uh, its potential assistance and disinformation. Uh, if it was, you know, you can already help a lot, ask it to help you create extremely compelling disinformation. So uh, we've we, we received this with both skepticism and uh, awe. And I think that is the right approach that we should be taking to new developments in tech. And I think that will probably be more the model going forward as opposed to the sheer awe and like, can I invest mindset that we've had up to now. David, I mentioned that I uh, interviewed Lucas Joppa at uh, Techonomy um, in, in November in, in Sonoma. I thought he was actually probably the best speaker. You, you've, you've, you've um, 
you've made it clear that for you, I think environment is the most important thing. Um, you have uh, an event coming up in the early uh, in early 2023 in March, uh, Techonomy Climate 2023. Why do you believe that? climate is the central issue of our age, both in 2022 and in 2023? Well, because we're destroying the world in real time and all of us, and certainly our children, will suffer tremendously if we do not take instant action, if we don't essentially pivot all of society's functions to operate in a new way. I mean, we've never faced a collective existential crisis comparable to this, um, the bad, the, the serious extreme weather we've had in recent years is just a taste of what's coming. Um, there's no credible case that the human uh, caused uh, emissions are not altering the world's climate. Uh, they are. We have to stop that. We have to figure out ways to remediate the harms that have been done already. Um, but uh, at the same time, it is, as Lucas Joppa believes, a huge business opportunity to both take urgent, immediate action and create really, really profitable businesses that contribute to solving the problem. And so my own belief, as you know, is that, you know, whereas the, the global markets have been led by uh, Internet companies for the last decade plus, uh, I think in coming decades, the global markets are going to be led by climate companies and climate-led companies in all industries, and the companies that do the most for the climate ultimately will be the ones that make the most money. And that has to be true, because otherwise we're all totally screwed. Is the technology there, David, now to address the crisis? We've done many shows on this, and there's a great deal of disagreement about oh. whether wind and solar are sufficient to address the crisis. I don't think wind and solar alone are sufficient to address the crisis. I think we probably do have the technologies we need if people were willing to spend whatever it takes to pivot 180 degrees from here. Um, I believe we are getting better technologies all the time that are going to make that pivot even easier. And the recent news about fusion nuclear power is a classic case in point. I mean, that was a major breakthrough just last week that finally somebody proved that you could get more energy out of a fusion reaction than you put in. Now, that is not anywhere near a commercial uh, development, but the number of people focusing on turning it into a commercial development is awe-inspiring. I mean, tens of thousands of, of people and companies and startups, I believe there's 33 fusion startups worldwide, and a lot of big companies are working on it as well. So there's a technology that we will probably get in coming decades, maybe in even the next decade, that will make it even easier. I'm not worried about having the technology. What is much more problematic is the will. And one of the reasons why I am pivoting my own work towards climate advocacy and, and, and making this point that we have to move, we have to use tech, and people who do that will benefit even financially is because I think only a positive vision is going to really motivate us enough because sadly at the moment, too much of what's said about climate, it just makes you want to put your pillow over your head 
and you know say okay um, see you in two decades you know underwater uh, people are are really really depressed when they think about how bad the climate is right now and how bad it's likely to get i mean one of the most successful books of recent day years is the the uninhabitable earth by david wallace wells and i think that title is indicative of how many people see the world we're heading into and they're kind, many are overly fatalistic and I don't want to accept that fatalism. I don't accept it. I don't think we can accept it. David, one of the more interesting conversations at Techonomy was your interview of Isaac Stone Fish, who is a, a hawk, a hardcore hawk on, on China. I, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I got the sense that you were suggesting that not everything about China should be dismissed or, or loathed. Yeah. And the Chinese model of what we might think of as technocratic authoritarianism might be in some ways more suitable to address the climate crisis than our own chaos, our circus of democracy. Is there any truth in that? Well, you're the expert on democracy, Andrew, but I wouldn't say the way you just said the last part. I would, But I would say this. I am not as wholeheartedly negative about China as Isaac is. Uh, because if you take what I said before about the existential climate crisis we're in, just look at that alone. There is no choice but global cooperation. We have to basically hold our nose and work with everybody on climate. And it has worried me, uh, at least now the U.S. and China are talking again about climate and other matters. It really worried me when after Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan and U.S.-Chinese interactions ceased entirely. I don't think we can afford that. We have to find ways of working with China, regardless of their motives, regardless of their ill behavior, regardless of their intellectual property theft and their spying and their manipulation. They do that stuff. We do some of those things, too, even though that's often not discussed nearly as much uh, in many parts of the world. But I'm not saying there's moral equivalency. They are, in many ways, a, a very harmful force. But uh, we have to find ways of working with them. You know, I believe you have to talk to even your enemies. I believe in dialogue. And um, I think the U.S. and China still can find a middle ground. Uh, but I'm not a U.S.-Chinese relations expert. But I know there are experts who agree with me. And there's real camps in this in this matter right now. And I don't think the White House is oriented quite as much as I would like towards trying to make things work with China, although I think Biden per se himself has, he would probably in his heart of hearts say something quite similar to what I'm saying. Um, he has some very hawkish advisors and, and you know, but China, China is one of, if not the biggest force in the world right now, and, and it has to be dealt with. And, you know, you have to work with what you got, you know, and, and Xi Jinping is going to be the leader. And, you know, there are benefits to being able to move quickly in an authoritarian government. I, I But I wouldn't say that I prefer it. No, I, I certainly, I, I'm not in any way suggesting that. Um, we had Orville Shell on the show actually yesterday talking about 2022 wow. in the context of China. And interestingly enough, even if he's a progressive, I mean, he lives in Berkeley, ran the J School at UC Berkeley for years. He, he did, seems to believe that there isn't much future in talking to Xi Jinping, but that's another subject. David, let's get on to 2023. A lot of people are going to be watching, listening, thinking, well, all this stuff so daunting. What can people yeah. do? And nothing's going to change 
profoundly in 2023, but how can we begin to turn the ship around in next year? I see a lot of positive signs about movement in the world that are deeply encouraging, including uh, participative democracy, which you've studied so closely. Um, but I would say the number one thing is we all have to become climate activists. There is no choice. That is our responsibility as humans. It's our responsibility to our children and their children. Um, and, and it's a very exciting thing to do because there's so much opportunity to have an impact. And, and even, like I said before, to make money, believe it or not. I mean, so, so that is what I would say to people that you have to be thinking about. Number one, number one is what can you do to help address the climate crisis? And I don't like to call it global warming. I'm now calling it, which The Guardian also does, global heating. I like that term. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's worse than it has been made out to be. Uh, and, and we've got to take action. But I, I see... You know, the world, the, the, you know, democracy seems to be, you know, rearing its beautiful head yet again a little bit. Uh, I think in the United States, we'll muddle through in a way that people were afraid we might not be able to over the next two years. Um, so I'm not grimly looking at 2023, except in the sense that hurricanes, fires, uh, heat waves, are going to be worse. You know, low-lying regions of the world are going to begin to be inundated. These are real developments that can't be ignored. I take all that, but should we all feel a little bit of pain on this? The, the meat lovers amongst us, should we be giving up meat? The people who love cars, stop driving. The people who love, love traveling on airplanes like you and I, stop flying. I mean, do we need to do stuff that hurts us? I don't know if we should think of it that way. I do think everyone individually needs to look at their own behavior more methodically. I am not a paradigm of responsibility. I still do what I am a classic wealthy country energy user, uh, much as I've tried to make certain tweaks in my own lifestyle. I don't eat as much meat. I haven't given up meat entirely, but you know, even many um, synthetic meat activists still eat meat, you know, we just need to radically reduce our meat use. And, and I still drink milk, but I'm trying to drink more oat milk and that kind of stuff, because 30% of US emissions are because of cattle alone and because of beef and, and, and milk, uh, because of the methane. And, and, and so yes, we have to make changes. Should we never fly? I don't think so. I, I maybe I'll come to that. Um, oh, should we Stop driving? Of course not. We, you know, we have to keep living, but we've got to find ways to do it more efficiently. And there are ways to do it more efficiently. And here's where even, you know, hapless Elon Musk has contributed tremendously for all of his foibles. You know, uh, we now and, and, and but it's not even as clear cut that we should all have EVs. It's interesting. You Toyota now is, talks about how if you just have plug in hybrids where you can get like 50 miles on a plug in. You, that may be better for the world because you have to build smaller batteries and and most people never drive more than 50 miles in a day anyway. So it's not so clear cut as everybody should just have an EV right away. That's the, the, the answers are nuanced to everything. Um, and unfortunately, we don't live in a world of nuances, you know, as well as anyone. And, and the problem is the problems of the world really are going to be 
nuanced problems that have to be responded to in nuanced ways. And that is really difficult. So I still am going to take a wholehearted approach toward climate activism that's not nuanced. But, you know, in reality, the answers aren't black or white to anything, including